0: welcome to the latest episode of the third wheel hsf's podcast on all things esg today is a special takeover episode a first for our finance team taking the wheel from usual hosts mel debenham and tim stutt i'm andrew mclean and i'm joined by my fellow finance team partners elizabeth libby charlesworth and john evans We're all project finance specialists. We act for lenders and sponsors across a range of sectors, from batteries and charging infrastructure for buses, acquisitions of smart metering businesses, airports, greenfield renewable developments, through to mining projects from here to Africa. So it's a broad church amongst the team here today. Today we're going to explore the topic of bankability versus sustainability. Now, if you haven't heard the term before bankability it's a term that gets used a lot in our area and in lots of different contexts but at its most basic level it refers to the risks and other factors that lenders will take into account when deciding whether they're going to fund a project historically it's been focused on project economics i.e are the various risks and that is both in construction and operation of a project sufficiently mitigated to provide a pathway to repayment of the funds provided to construct the project. So we wanted to explore today how the idea of sustainability, which in many cases could be said to adversely affect project economics, fits alongside the traditional idea of bankability. And we'll look at this from a few angles today, but as a starting principle, we actually see sustainability and ESG as not really in conflict with bankability anymore. And actually, it's really a key part of the overall bankability analysis that lenders will run on a project. In practice, banks and other lenders don't see them as as conflicting principles at all, but related parts of the overall risk assessment that they, they run on a project. And you can see that through the development of ESG-based lending products like green loans and sustainability link loans, but more broadly in the nuts and bolts decision-making of lenders on the projects which they can now fund and which they choose to fund. I'll start with a question for you, John. Um, to begin, we we have a broader ESG audience here at The Third Wheel, I'm told. Can you kick us off with explaining some of the, the um I guess ESG related loan products that we're saying things like green loans sustainability linked loans what what are some of these products what are they what do they look like and what are they about
1: yeah thanks uh, Andrew thanks uh, everyone nice to speak to you today um, so we've really seen a, a massive growth in in what we call sustainable finance over the last 10 years and that's really been driven by uh, both borrowers and lenders looking to align their financing arrangements with uh, the, the public esg commitments that they're making um, just as an example you know there was around you know 200 um, uh, billion um, us dollars issued in the sustainable finance market in 2018 that increased to uh, over a trillion dollars trillion us dollars in, in 2021 um, so even in such a such a short time there's been a, a massive increase in in the market in response to that um what we've seen um sort of locally in Australia and 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 globally is um is a response from uh from industry bodies uh such as the the LMA uh, the loan markets association in Europe um the APLMA, the equipment body in, in in Asia um and and over in the. US as well um the introduction of industry standards to um to try and ensure consistency in the, in the market in terms of what people are are actually labeling as uh, as sustainable finance products um and, and what we're really seeing in in the local market is is uh, financing products fall fall into sort of two two broad categories on one side you have um, green or social loans um, and on the other side you have sustainability linked loans um, maybe I'll, I'll sort of talk you through some of the aspects of each of those um, the, Green and social loans really are designed as as a use of proceeds loan, so it's a it's a loan which is provided to a borrower which is using the loan to to fund um, the uh, the development or or acquisition uh, of of a green or social project. And what we mean there is, you know, on the green loan side of things, you might see that being used for renewable energy projects. Um, you know, social loans might be provided to uh, developers for social housing projects. Um, we've seen social loans being provided in the context of uh, of health uh, and hospital projects as well. In contrast, sustainability-linked loans are not. There's no link between the the, the funds being provided by the banks and and how those um, how those funds are being used. So, you know, they could be used for the general corporate purposes of the, of, the, of the borrower. But critically, what what is is a key element of of those loans is is a set of sustainability performance targets. Um, And and those targets are selected and agreed between the borrower and the lender to, again, to align align with the borrower's uh, stated sustainability performance goals. Um, They might include things like a reduction in carbon emissions, um uh, or you know um, wastewater, you know the, the the volume of wastewater produced by a particular uh, industrial process. Um, social targets might be linked to things like um, uh, gender equality, um, uh, education and training outcomes for for for, for minority um, uh, employees. Um, you know there's a variety of different types of, of social targets that that can be captured. Um in terms of the, the way that the market's evolved, there's been a real focus on you know, the quality of those targets, you know, ensuring that those targets are sufficiently ambitious, um, you know, to ensure that the market sort of remains credible um, and to you know avoid uh you know claims from claims from some sectors that these these products are being used to greenwash or or social wash um you know problem businesses. And we might sort of come on to talk about uh, that a bit later on.
0: Thanks, John. Uh Lib, the other thing we've seen um, evolving over the last ten to fifteen years, uh, the role of, uh, of federal government funders um, um, and other agencies like the Clean Energy Finance Corporation or um, and the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. How have you seen their role and how have they um, evolved over over the recent past?
2: Yeah, thank you, Andrew. I mean, there's certainly been a lot happening in the in the federal government space since the election um, last May, in particular, and and there's this real sense of, I describe it as, optimistic urgency um, across across the industry. I mean, from a government perspective, the, the focus has Particularly, been on deepening Australia's green finance market, um, as well as seeking to understand the best opportunities to capitalise um, on on the global energy transition. And and I think that's um, against a really fierce competition internationally. Um, you know, particularly um, in w- that we've seen coming out of, out of the US. Um, and and part of that is um, sort of role of role of government is you know creating investor confidence and certainty. Um, so I guess while now we, and I guess your question goes to how the evolution of of this has has happened. We're we're beginning to see really significant interest from commercial banks, both the um, Aussie players and and the foreign banks active in Australia, but also institutional investors and other private capital. But the role um, of the you know government funded clean energy finance corporation or CFC and the Australian Renewable Energy Agency or ARENA. I mean the role that they've played over the last um you know ten plus years in stimulating investments in in renewable energy, energy efficiency, low emissions technology, it just just can't be sort of understated. Um, and I think certainly you know while it's really hot to be in this space right now it it wasn't always so. it wasn't um it wasn't something that was um, had the the force and um, draft that it does now. um but those sort of government, um, funded institutions had you know a huge role in building blocks and 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 now what we're able to leverage off i mean what i think is the most interesting really about both the cfc and arena is like their ability to constantly evolve and be dynamic um, and i think this is across two aspects one is like the financing products that that they um have been making available and and john spoke a little bit about you know green and sustainable sustainability linked loans earlier but i think really i mean We've seen you know there was there was sort of a a debt investment um but that was originally made by equity investments um, through these government funders, you know grant funding, different types of um, um products has has been coming through. And in addition to that, part of this sort of staying relevant and and trying to lead the industry is about you know what are these different clean energy pillars. And so people often think about, um, you know, renewables and wind and solar as like sort of clean energy. Um, but if you look at what the CFC and ARENA have been doing, um, then, you know, you see credentials in in things like the built environment. And and here where I'm talking about property, housing finance um, for green home loans, build to rent communities um, in the infrastructure space, like transport and freight and how you can, um, you know. Uh, d- you know, um, reduce emissions there, also decarbonisation of manufacturing. Um, and then also things like um, work in transmission interconnectors, you know, grid and and sustainable economy like agribusiness. Those areas and those sort of um, other other parts of the, the picture are where we're seeing sort of increasing focus. And, and I think as well, it's kind of across the value chain. So we've seen Arena and CFC, you know, they're not, um, they, they, they're focused um, across a, a range of different um, parts of that um, chain from small businesses to um, innovators and, and developers and, and whoever's trying to push the boundaries to enable innovation and research and investment into ideas that I guess um, traditional, you know, commercial financiers would not have been able to to pursue until things are a bit more shored up. Um, so I guess looking forward, where you know they, they've sort of evolved, they've 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 stayed dynamic and and um, at, at the forefront. Um, I guess now with this um, even greater impetus, they've got deeper pockets, and and that's um we've we've seen there's been more funding provided to them. They've got wider remits and. Coupled with this sort of global focus on energy transition, I, I'm just really excited to see how those continue to evolve and 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 what role they continue to play, um, and I'm I'm sure that they will continue to drive transformation in 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 this space. Um, so yeah.
0: Mm. And and I mean energy, the energy sector is sort of ground zero, if you like, for the um for the E in ESG, um, and you know that has. In, in our, the time of our respective careers, that has just changed so much, and, um, and it, it's really fascinating to see how quickly the industry itself evolves. And, and, and the, the evolution of uh, batteries, for example, is a really interesting case study in that. Do, can you talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, I mean that's that's I think um, um, you know having been working in financing sort of renewable projects and, and appreciate that batteries are not renewable, um, but having worked in space for for more than 15 years now sort of, if you stop and take a look back and see what has evolved and and what these new technologies are, it, it sort of seems that everything's happening extremely slowly for a long time and now just at pace um, that it's, it's sort of hard to keep up. So yeah, batteries, batteries, a great sort of case study um, to, to talk to. Um, I mean, if you just think back um, to 2017, in the world, we didn't have anywhere any what I'm going to call so big, large scale batteries, utility scale, um, and you know there was a lot of fanfare back in in uh, 20, 2017 when Elon Musk um, boldly came out and said, you know, we'll build a 100 megawatt um, battery in 100 da- less than 100 days. And, and they did that in, in South Australia, and that, of course, is the you know, 100 megawatt hour um, – sorry, 100 megawatt, 129 megawatt hour Hornsdale Power Reserve, and, that, and they did that at the end of 2017. At that stage, there was just really not any commercial debt funding um, available for batteries, and I think that there was quite a lot of government support. Um, they weren't considered bankable. People didn't know how, how the revenue streams would stack up. Um, and I think the Hornsdale Power Reserve by being that that first one really led led the way and and showed that um there was there was um an ability to to make money off these and that they you know are proven, so I mean by 2020 um, that that Hornsdale Power Reserve was expanded by another 50 megawatts, um, and the CFC put um, and Arena both put um, capital in into that. I mean, and then you know we had the 300 megawatt um, Victorian big battery, then and arenas. I mean, sorry, CFC's funding on that was 160 million. So you can just see a pace, the amount of um, capital and the the scale has gone from 100 to 300 in a couple of years. I mean, move forward to where we are now in 2023. um, It's it's not. there's a, a range of other developers and gen-tellers um, across the energy sector who are deploying um, large-scale batteries. The size is ever-increasing. We've seen, you know, GenX, Edify, FRV, AGL, Energy Australia, Origin, everyone with, with these projects. Um, and they're seeking to finance them with... Um, commercial banks um, and everyone is 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 rolling up to try and understand the risks here the challenges and to enable more energy storage to be financed and built um, as quickly as as possible so the batteries are getting bigger the need to innovate in order for you know cfc and arena grant funding has sort of have shifted as well i mean arena announced last year 176 million dollars for eight grid scale battery projects and and these these are grid forming inverter technology so this is where they can provide system stability services so we're trying to i guess um look forward such that when coal and and gas come out of the system that we've got that system stability so we're looking for these batteries to play um, an increasingly important role and and that's and that's what we're seeing Um, so it's um you know commercial banks are are really getting stuck in things are are being proven up as bankable Um, there are the Everyone's looking at, at different offtake models and, and making sure that those um cash flows are, are sort of as certain as, as possible for the amount of debt that's going in. And it's um it's just I guess it's it's happened really quickly um, if you just look back past those those five years of of size scale and, and who's playing in the market. So I guess um, you know, just touching then um Andrew, you know. That sort of large-scale batteries, but you know the demand for electric vehicles is totally store, um, so, soaring, um, as, as well as sort of clean energy storage. But so too is um, the market for lithium and other battery minerals, uh, minerals. So, what are your views on on bankability versus sustainability in the mining space? Because that's you know quite a quite a different take.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting to follow on from your observations there. Libby, the, the growth in the storage space um, has obviously led, and, and then combined with things like electric vehicles um, expanding exponentially around the world, the demand for raw materials that go into the, the batteries that are going, the large-scale batteries that are going into grids, um, you know, the, the components of electric vehicles and other similar technologies that are really expanding rapidly, um, that has really changed the um, the market in the mining space um, for those materials, and I, I remember you know, on a similar timescale to, to the development of those battery projects you mentioned, you know, over in the early or the late teens of 2018, 2019, talking to project financiers in the mining sector who were getting urged by bank management to, to bank lithium projects and other battery mineral projects, um, given the impetus towards the energy transition, but then getting really stonewalled by their credit committees because they present the financial model and and the first question would be, well, um, show me your offtake agreements and and the floor price or the fixed price in those offtake agreements, and there there just wasn't anything like that in the the market at that time. And it was really a common issue that we encountered in those early early days, if you can call it that, given it's only five years ago. But OEMs um, in this space, wanting to secure supply, often with a geopolitical element of wanting to secure supply out of countries like Australia, uh, but not willing to sign up to bankable terms and and really not seeming to understand that that would really scuttle the prospects of project financing for the mining project. It'd never really been an issue to date uh, because supply had always outstripped demand for these minerals. But the, the shift since then has just been so rapid. Um, um, so we're not just seeing... The OEMs signing up to bankable offtake agreements, they're actually often stumping up to do the finance themselves in order to really secure that supply. And there was a recent example of that in Western Australia with Lion Town Resources, who have the Kathleen Valley Lithium project. And one of their offtakers was Ford. And um and Ford, as well as doing the offtake, have have um, provided a, a substantial Financing alongside that to um, to fund the development of the project. So it's a it's a really quantum shift um, in the in the dynamic uh, both on the offtake side, but even on the financing side as a result. Um and more generally, with mining, it's quite an interesting sector to consider with ESG. Clearly, that um, it's essential to the energy transition uh, for those materials that we're talking about, things like lithium, but also rare earths, graphite. There's a a lot of things, and Australia. Um, continues to be the lucky country with the, the natural endowment we have of these resources but mining is obviously an extractive industry which it necessarily involves uh, intensive capital works on, on sites which are often um, environmentally sensitive um, so it does require a lot of diligence and, and banks are are incredibly uh, focused on that, so they 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 run the ruler not just from the legal side, which we are often involved in, but there's there are specialist environmental due diligence providers, and that expands then into the social as well. You know, we regularly um, look closely at native title, Aboriginal heritage, and and similar things to make sure that those uh, those works are um, being conducted in a way that takes account of the those of sensitive sites uh, for Indigenous people. Um, so. All of that is really front and center for banks in the in the sector, um, and of course, processing technologies for a lot of these minerals are really carbon intensive. So emissions are a big a big factor in the mining space. Um, but we're really we're really seeing mining companies trying to get trying to get in front of these issues um, and look at ways in which clean energy. Can be incorporated into their projects and and in a way they've sort of been a great r d opportunity because they're often remote sites um so they've been um they've been the the um site of really interesting hybrid um electricity generation technologies and and they've then been almost adopted from there into into regional communities um as uh, as the technology that makes the most sense uh, but is also um uh, ticking the boxes on on the emissions front. So all of this is really actively encouraged by financiers in the sector. And, and to sort of circle back to what Libby was talking about earlier, you know, we're seeing the likes of of CEFC um, um, getting into the mining sector. And, and one of the ways they can participate in terms of their mandate is if the processing technology is more energy efficient than other projects globally that are producing the same resource. So. It's interesting the, the crossover between the sectors and, and the financiers that are that are active in this space. Um, now, obviously, with all of this, John, you mentioned it earlier. There's there's always a, a bit of a risk of of the perception, at least, of greenwashing, um, particularly for for big emitters. Um, in your experience, when do you see sustainable financing or even traditional financing um, uh, with a focus with those kind of lenders uh, become a greenwashing risk
1: yeah look it's it's a really um hot issue at the moment uh and and one that has been uh, you know the market has focused on increasingly over the last few years and i think it obviously tracks the the growth in the market or you know exponential growth in the market that we've seen really um and and the i guess the importance that um boards are, are, are placing on um you know ticking ticking boxes uh you know in terms of esg credentials you know there, there's been i think that sort of created the the perception or, or the the risk that um you know that the companies are doing things to to demonstrate to the market that they are taking taking steps to improve their esg credentials um the the question always is are those are there is there any substance to to those actions um, and so you know sustainable finance, like any other sort of ESG action is is you know is is a, an area of risk and, and focus um, you know from a greenwashing or, or social washing perspective. Um, we've increasingly seen uh, regulators taking action um, and and putting greenwashing as a, a sort of a priority uh, action item on on their lists. Um, ASic last year you know stated that that this year they'd be sort of focusing. Uh, on greenwashing as, as a priority um and already this year we've seen uh ASIC announce that announce that they're taking action against um against Mercer a uh, superannuation provider um I mean the case is, is is an interesting one it's it you know it, it, it um, ASIC is alleging that um uh that Mercer um was was signing up to uh signing up members to a, a sustainable plus fund um and was making claims that the fund would, wouldn't invest in companies that were involved in power-intensive um, fossil fuels or alcohol or, or gambling um, despite this though the, the you know it's alleged that the uh that mercer did invest he- heavily in those areas uh with members funds it, it you know on on the reporting it looks like a fairly egregious um uh, case of misleading and deceptive conduct, and, and so it's um, it's not surprising if, if the allegations are true that ASIC would uh, you know, would be looking to take action. I think it's obviously you know if it's the if, if it's the the first you know, significant action that that ASIC is, is taking, I'm sure it's wanted to, uh, to 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 have an easy case to start off with. But I think it's really really indicative of um, you know an increased focus by by regulators on on the sector. Um, and not just the superannuation sector, the broader sustainable financing se- sector will be a focus for uh, for regulators in coming years. Um, you know, I think we're we're also seeing um, the risks around uh, greenwashing reflected in in borrowers and banks' uh, behaviours and, and discussions we're having with with, uh, uh, with people in the market. You know, I've spoken to treasurers in in a number of sectors that are probably at the, at the harder to abate end of the the spectrum and. And the tone of the conversations that we're having is 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 quite different from from what it was a couple of years ago. And I think treasurers are recognising that they need to be much more uh, considered and and cautious about you know moving their financing arrangements to a sustainable a sustainability linked loan uh, sort of platform. Um, which you know obviously is the the right thing to be doing you know that these you know we we, we want to make sure that the, that these products continue to have credibility and people are doing them um for the right reasons and setting the right targets um you know we've also seen you know banks receive some criticism for for their involvement in in uh some deals with more question with a more questionable ESG impact and i think In response to this, we've seen um, that many banks have have tightened their lending standards um, in relation to sustainable finance uh, products, and they are more active through industry organisations in in trying to ensure that there is, um, I guess, a consistent approach uh, between banks um, in in the sector um, so that they collectively are are held to the same standard.
2: Thanks, John. Yeah, that's super super interesting, John. Um, I mean, I think we we've, we've chatted about um, so green loans and sustaini- sustainability linked loans. Um, and and project financing, particularly in sort of the renewable energy um space. I mean, opportunities for project sponsors and finances on the social side of the sustainability financing um seem to be growing. And I guess I I was keen to. to to hear if you've been seeing social targets emerging, um, and and whether there's any sort of pink washing risks.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, really, if you if you sort of turn the clock back a few years, um, the focus certainly was more on the green side of you know the e side of the ESG equation. Mm-hmm. Um, but as as the market has has progressed, I, I think there's been a broader recognition. Um, that a lot of businesses have work to do uh, in terms of their social impact that uh, that they have, and I think that's probably just reflective of um, you know the, the growing um, focus that the market has on social impacts. Um, you know, more generally, um, you know, what we've seen is that you know, particularly in the sustainability-linked loans, um, you know, whereas borrowers would would previously be focused on targets that were linked to. Um, Uh, green outcomes or green impacts. Um, They are now most um, sustainability linked lines that we're seeing combine um, green targets with social targets. Um, And we're seeing uh, those sort of targets in uh, addressing things like, um, you know, workplace health and safety, um, gender equality and representation, um, and, uh, you know, employment conditions. Um, One of the, the real benefits I think that we see in and uh, and a lot of borrowers see in, in social sustainability linked loan targets is that they can really be quite tailored to the particular business or sector that the borrower uh, is operating in, um, and the and the, the issues facing that particular sector. Um, you know, so for example, in some industries there's there's an underrepresentation of of women in workforces or in in senior management position positions. Um, in other industries they might be facing issues with you know training and employment of of local communities in in regional areas Uh, you know in each of those um, businesses you know different sustainability performance targets could be could be uh introduced to to address those those social uh social issues and on the um i guess on the pink washing or social washing front really the same concerns um, arise as as in relation to greenwashing. Um, you know, I think any, any these days any social sustainability loan is going to be scrutinised by stakeholders in the same way as as a you know as a green uh, financing. Um, and there's a lot of focus on whether or not targets are sufficiently ambitious and meaningful in the context of you know the, the broader social issue that they're trying to address. I think the other thing about social targets is you know they um, in many cases they are much more um, qualitative than quantitative, you know, compared to, you know, a reduction in carbon emissions, um, you know, a social impact can be harder to measure. So really sort of making a, having a clearly defined target and, and calculation methodology and one that can be, can respond to changes in community expectations over time, I think is is um is what we're seeing a lot of people fo- focus on. All
0: right. I think we uh, we could all keep going for... Um, a lot longer on this topic but uh, conscious of of the time. As is a third wheel tradition uh, we'll leave you with an interesting fact from the world of ESG. Um, Today we're looking at Europe Um, so in Amsterdam five airlines are suing the Dutch government over plans to cut the number of flights from Europe's third busiest airport due to the impact of flying on noise pollution and climate um, and then in France, the European Commission has approved France's move to ban short-haul domestic flights between cities that are linked by a train journey of, of less than two and a half hours, um, which at this point will only affect three routes between Paris and Nantes, Lyon and Bordeaux, uh, but that could be expanded. Um, and that's all in an effort to reduce emissions um, uh, in France. So. Interesting to see those developments. Personally, I lived in France for a couple of years and um, I'm not sure why anyone would take a flight between those cities where you, when you can sit back and relax on on those beautiful French trains, uh, but if you transpose that to Australia, um, John Libby, you're both sort of infrastructure boffins. Can you see something like that happening here in Australia?
1: is uh, if if um, someone can build a, a train line between Melbourne and Sydney that takes less less than two and a half hours, I know I know <laughs> I'd be jumping on on, on board. So um, I think we're a long way away from that though. Libby, what do you reckon?
2: Yeah, no, no, no I just I just can't see that can't see that happening here.
0: <laughs> all right, um, thanks to you both and and to all of you out there. Thank you for listening. Thanks thank all. You. In the spirit of reconciliation. Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their Elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.